And hello, everybody. Welcome to Paul Listnick Behind the Curtain. Today, we're going to kind of mix the world of entertainment that I like to do on the podcast with the world of politics, which you all know me for on WGN TV. But it's to talk about an incredible new book, which is called Democracy's Rebirth, The View from Chicago, written by another of the many books written by my good friend, Professor Dick Simpson, former alderman for the 44th Ward in the city of Chicago. And Dick, congratulations on the book. A, I've read it cover to cover. And B, I think this is probably one of the most important books you've ever written, and you've written a lot of them. Uh, I do think it's the most important that I've ever done. It uh, tries to combine an understanding of the challenges of democracy nationally with what's actually happening on the ground in Chicago and using Chicago as a template for how we might begin to solve the national problems. You know, what's really interesting. I mean, ordinarily, somebody in academia would say, oh, I did a tremendous amount of research. And I know you did. But the difference with you, depending on when you choose to start uh, the timeline of the book. But the truth is, you you lived this timeline and you were part of it. Yes, I go back in Chicago politics to 1967 when I was a campaign manager, first in a congressional district and then statewide for Eugene McCarthy for president. And I know about the 1968 Democratic Convention and all of the other things that are reported, like the segregation in Chicago. I'd like to say that I have no memory of any of that stuff, but I do. Uh, so, uh, But you have a better memory than me. You're a little older. Um, let's talk about the book. First of all, you, you pick Chicago, the view from Chicago. So I, I have to start by asking you, you know, why Chicago? I mean, you could have picked many a city and some would say Chicago has a very sort of unique history politically. Why is this the right city to take that view of democracy from? Well, um, uh, I think Chicago is either the epicenter, um, the extreme case or the epitome of um, American politics. That is, everything here is bigger than life. Uh, Chicagoans aren't really polite. Uh, They have a little bit of Midwestern beer on them, but um, if there's race relations, it's called black and white. It's not uh, hidden like it is in many American cities. If it's machine politics, the machine is out in the open. It's not just that the party's manipulating behind the scenes. So that gives us a view that allows us to think about what the real problems are and what potential solutions can be to them. And the message is not just local. I'm talking about Chicago because so many of our, our listeners and, and now viewers for this podcast are in Chicago. But the reality of it is your message is a national one. In fact, actually an international flavor as well, but certainly a national one. Yeah, the international flavor is unfortunately autocracy has been on the rise for the last 15 years. And it's seen most dramatically in the new Russia-Ukraine war. But um, the, so the problems are international because we've been losing ground for speaking about democracy. But it's particularly focused on the United States. It was very clear during the Trump administration how close we were to failing as a complete democracy. And the insurrection on January 6th, uh, 2021, was sort of the exclamation point or the obvious uh, aspect of that. But the problem started decades earlier. They didn't start with Trump and they didn't start with the insurrection. Those are kinds of culminations. And Chicago lets us understand that better in the long term and what might be the solutions. You say that for a democracy to succeed, citizens have to participate. It's a pretty sad commentary that when you actually look at 
uh, the voter number of voters who vote in elections here. I mean, it more often than not is like in the 30s. If that, why don't people want to participate and, and, and have their voice? Well, so there's a bunch of reasons. You're quite right. The last presidential election was extraordinary and that 67 percent of the voters participated. It's the highest number. It was the highest number of people in American history. It was the highest percentage since 1900. So that's the good news. But of course, it was a rather extraordinary election Uh, in the mayoral election uh, back in 2019. You're quite right. The numbers were in the 30 percent range which means 70% of the people in Chicago didn't care who became mayor or alderman, which is not a recipe for democracy. It's a recipe for failure. So we need to find ways to strengthen participation. There've been some nice steps forward. Two of them I would point out. One is we've begun civic education programs in the schools for the first time as a matter of law. You now at the eighth grade and in high school have to take civic engagement courses, and we have a new curriculum that's available statewide to help make sure that those are rigorous and helpful courses. They're not just learning about the three branches of government. It's much more substantial uh, than that. But in addition, in Illinois, unlike the many states that are doing voter suppression, we have moved to automatic voter registration. We've moved to early voting We've moved in to mail-in ballots. And in fact, if you're a Chicagoan, you got from the Board of Election Commissioners now an option to permanently uh, opt for mail-in ballots. You won't even have to go to the polling place anymore. You'll be able to vote more easily. So if you're working, you don't have to take time off work. You don't have to uh, uh, worry that Election Day isn't a holiday. You can vote pretty easily. And if you still fail to vote, then something's wrong with the candidates or with the populace or both. So that's the positive side of the way Illinois potentially conducts its elections. But as you know, there's a lot of uh, reverberation around this country and a lot of other states that say those very things that we allow the mail in ballots. This is where corruption, this is fraud, this is where drop boxes, this is the source of all the problems in elections, even though they don't really find many fraudulent problems. They only found 31 out of all of the cases they looked at in the last uh, 2020 election uh, that were fraudulent in the sense you mean. It is true that you can't have fraud in elections. Chicago has known about fraud in elections. We almost perfected the techniques under paper ballot and under the old machines that we used to have in the polling places. Uh, But we've cut way down on corruption in elections in the sense of um, rigging the ballot. But what we've not cut down on is the pervasive influence of money, where you have to be a billionaire or you have to have major contributions to be able to run. Let me just give you some quick numbers. Of course, you have to be a, raise a billion dollars if you're going to run for president. But as you know, from here in Illinois, these days, if you're going to have to run for governor, 20 or 30 million dollars isn't enough. Uh, If you're going to run for Congress, uh, most elections are four or five million dollars in cost. Uh, Lori Lightfoot in the last mayoral election raised five million. If she does run for reelection, she's going to have to raise 10 million to run for alderman of all things. You have to raise more than a quarter of a million dollars. And in the ward you and I live in, the number is a million dollars. So this is something that prevents many good candidates from running. 
which means there's a money primary before any of the other primaries. And that is a, a more pervasive problem at the, at the moment than outright election fraud in the sense of stealing. One follow up on you know the fact that you said that voter uh, turnout was so high in the last presidential election. I get it. Biden versus Trump. Why that would bring people out and yet low in the mayoral election where we had an open seat uh, with Rahm Emanuel stepping down. But here's the thing. I often tell people, look, your vote matters more when you are dealing with local elections. I mean, the local people are the ones that impact your life far more than, say, a president is going to. Yet people don't seem to see it that way. They, they get stirred on by the national issues, which I understand. But when you're voting for mayor and alderman and, and you know, local people, that's, that's your life. That does matter. I mean, it affects your property tax. It affects the police, whether the police are uh, doing police abuse and acting out or whether they're behaving properly and protecting the citizenry. Everything you can think of that affects your life most directly probably does come locally. But national politics still matters. The Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade is an example of that. And there are many other examples, um, you know, whether or not... Uh, Uh, We're going to be able to avoid inflation, whether we're going to get out of the recession successfully, how we handled the COVID crisis. Uh, Part of the things that have been happening to us is we've been faced with cascading crises. And the good thing about all those cascading crises is it now gives us the impetus to fix the flaws in our system. It sort of laid bare the problems, the problems of the public health system the problems of segregation and how much more the COVID crisis uh, affected minorities than it did uh, whites. Uh, so things are, are becoming crystal clear. And it, the reason I did the book in part is that social scientists, political scientists, and practical politicians have begun to come to a synthesis about what needs to be done. Now, most of them study only one issue. So they study income inequality or racial segregation or one of the other problems we've already talked about. Uh, In my book, I try and show how they're all interrelated and how it doesn't mean we have to work on all of these different issues simultaneously, individually. We can just pick one and try and fix that, but fixing one will affect all the others. You also talk about the importance of an informed electorate. Now, look, I, I don't I don't have a lot of faith that people are informed. I mean, I certainly in judicial elections, I get the fact that people don't know a lot about the candidates and they might pick a name based on their perceived gender or race or, you know, ethnicity or, or some factor because there's a lot of judicial candidates. And that's maybe a strange kind of research to have to do. But the issues you just talked about, the Roe versus Wade uh, decision or the uh, or, or the pandemic or the economy, in many ways, those are econo- I'm sorry, those are emotional reactions that people people react to, which means, is it more of an investment in an issue that brings people to the polls than it is being the informed voter that you write about is so important? It's some of both. Uh, First of all, we can come at the end to the discussion of democracy and what we need to do. But one of the things is we need to practice democracy. Um, In the last of the book, I talk about a more participatory democracy at the local level, with the introduction of neighborhood government, for instance, in Chicago, and a more deliberative democracy nationally, where by panels of us, we get to discuss with our Congress people the actual issues. The problem at the moment is in most elections, we don't have any influence on the policy. 
we get to choose between one wealthy person running against another wealthy person for the election. And that's not real participation. So one reason the American public is not great about all of the things like voting is that they don't get any practice at real democracy. And so we're going to, these are fundamental root radical, if you will, changes that have to come about in addition to all of the individual changes like introducing civic engagement education or uh, fixing the problem of the of the taxes and so on. You also talk about the importance for people to hold the government accountable for democracies, democracies to succeed. And so what do you say? Obviously, in the Chicago world, we can create a roster of aldermen who either are on their way to prison or have been in prison or maybe are currently under indictment. And then we look at, you know, more national situations uh, like, you know, the Trump family where, you know, maybe they're innocent of everything. I have no idea. But it does seem to be that accountability doesn't seem to reach everybody, even if accountability means you have to deal with the issues in a trial or something like that. So how effective are people at holding government accountable? Well, there are a bunch of problems. Uh, you know, for instance, trying to hold your alderman accountable is a little difficult because the city clerk doesn't keep records in a fashion that allows you to easily just look up on the city clerk's website that Alderman Jones voted X, Y, and Z on the three issues you care about. Um, we have to spend 100 hours per year to decode the information at the University of Illinois at Chicago to publish a voting record of the alderman which allows us to make judgments about what they did and each one individually. And that shouldn't happen, have to happen. A citizen ought to be able to, to get the information in a form that's useful for them to do accountability. Um, so there are a bunch of changes, and you're quite right. Corruption is very corrosive. I mean, you were talking about aldermen. 37 aldermen have gone to federal prison since 1976. It uh, looks like four or five more are on the way there now. Uh, four of the last 10 governors, 19 of the judges in circuit court. Um, this kind of corruption rate, about 2,200 people in the state of Illinois since 1976 have gone to federal prison for political corruption. So curbing corruption is a big deal. Uh, but you're talking about also other forms of corruption not just the simple bribery kind of corruption, but also institutional corruption. I gave the example of the money primary. Everybody could be perfectly ethical. The candidate running could ask for money ethically. The person giving the money could add, could give it ethically, and the system would still be corrupt. And finally, uh, there is the, the beyond the notion of institutional corruption, there's moral corruption in the Trump family is an excellent example. The conflicts of interest to the Trump family are a scandal. I also want to talk a little bit about the sort of the history of mayors in Chicago. You write a lot about that, and you you write about the fact that the mayors we elect reflect the changing state of our people. You go back to Richard J. Daley, as I do, and here's the thing. It seems to be that uh, lately, people like maybe a Lori Lightfoot, who I know you support, and you said we don't know if she's running. She's running. I'll, I'll take my word um, But for re-election. But, but the point is, it almost seems to be that today, a mayor has to kind of send the message that they are of the people, they're listening to the people. Talk about how that has changed since the old Richard J. Daley days when, you know, Daley has the famous comment, don't send me anybody, or I don't want to see anybody who wasn't sent here. Uh, the, the days where political connections are all that mattered, he was going to win no matter what. It, it just didn't matter what he did. 
It, it didn't. And he became, I uh, served and led the opposition block against Richard J. Daley and the city council. And the longer he stayed in power, the more autocratic he got. He actually was pretty responsive in uh, his first election in 55. And and in the early period, uh, he would respond to the city council. He would be more open to citizens. But after 22 years, he no longer gave a damn. Uh, he was in charge of the machine. He was a boss. Everybody told him he was wonderful. And he made some very bad mistakes, including uh, continuing the pattern of segregation. Let's take two other elections just as a quick example as to how things have changed. Harold Washington, when he got elected, got elected with the African-American vote and a small rainbow coalition in the Latino and white community. And that was the only way he could, and only because two whites were splitting the white vote back at the time. Fast forward to Lori Lightfoot. She got elected by the white vote with a rainbow coalition of blacks and Latinos. That's a big change that we would be able to move as a people from voting racially in a segregated fashion or only for our own race to the most recent mayoral election when we were voting on other questions like who could best govern the city. Um, In chapter six of the book, and I say that because that's proof I read it, um, you write about polarization and that in Chicago, you even write, we don't even have Republicans in Chicago anymore. I mean, we do have very conservative Democrats, I suppose. Maybe they really are Republicans, but are afraid to identify themselves as such. Yes, there are uh, some closet Republicans in the Chicago City Council, but no one will admit to being a Republican. We have no Republican county office holders except a couple of county board members who come from the suburbs. No county official like the county board president or the clerk and so forth uh, uh, are Republicans. And the Republicans don't even aren't even able to run candidates for judge at the county level because they know they'll lose. They just don't put up a slate. So our situation is unusual in Chicago. And the one-party dominance of Chicago, like the one-party dominance in Louisiana or Washington, D.C., or other places, New Jersey, has led to corruption. Uh, There is a direct link between one-party dominance and the side effect of one-party dominance, which is always corruption. There is polarization, which you write about, but then you take it to the next level, a very sort of frightening level, which is the level of resentment. And you say that's where the dissatisfaction with democracy really comes in. Um, You know, we have polarization maybe in the city at a national level. I think it's easy enough to use the word resentment. Just talk about that distinction. And where do you see the resentment? Because that seems to be a bigger challenge to democracy than maybe just polarization. Yeah, resentment is a terrible problem. In other words, we move to identity uh, politics, not issue politics. And so um, a good example is a very fine book called The Politics of Resentment, which is written about Wisconsin, not about Trump, about Scott Walker and that election that predates Trump. And what uh, the author found was that the rural areas felt like they were being run by the city folk and they didn't have any voice. No one understood their problems. They didn't even like the bureaucrats who were assigned uh, to to be in their area and provide government services because no one seemed to understand them. And this was a time of of the Great Recession. It was a time when people were losing houses, losing jobs, losing income. And we had the same thing repeat again during the pandemic. 
and we're trying to get out of the pandemic now in this period. Uh, so there are people in the city who have a similar kind of resentment about the government and about the way things are going and uh, blame their own situation on the society and the politics. And they're not altogether wrong. Uh, we have to overcome the kind of polarization that leads to resentment or hate of the other side. When you can no longer compromise, say, if you're a Republican with a Democrat or a Democrat with a Republican and come to an agreement about tax policy. Uh, for people in the politics of resentment, all taxes are bad. They don't want to pay any to the government. Isn't that what makes democracy so fragile? And by that, I mean, again, you, you talk about the fragility of democracy and the fact that there seems to be a preference in, around the world and in this country, France avoided it, but this preference for authoritarianism, it's really fairly shocking that that it's almost as though people even in this country are not quite as interested as de in democracy as they are in having an authoritarian leader that they can completely believe in and follow to the ends of the earth. And we know where that leads with people like Hitler or Stalin or others. Um, it may begin more benignly, but they destroy the guardrails of democracy, the, not only the laws, but the practices. Um, you know, the fact that uh, in, the, in the previous Congress, they wouldn't even give a hearing to a Supreme Court justice appointed by, uh, nominated by Obama. They just simply said, well, we're not going to do that. Well, you start having those kinds of decisions in our government and you start having resentment among the pollen, uh, under the populace. And you're on your way to thinking, well, we'll just elect Smith or Jones. They will take care of us. Uh, they will be a Trump-like figure. And we've seen that happen in Hungary. We've seen that happen in Venezuela. It is happening around the world. And you're right, it almost happened in France. When we were growing up, there were basically three networks, CBS, NBC, ABC. You had Walter Cronkite, the dean of them all, uh, and Huntley and Brinkley and, and all that. But um, Today, of course, with social media and 8,000 cable channels and all this kind of stuff, what percentage of, you know, not necessarily percentage, but how much do you put responsibility on the growth of social media, the number of, not just social media, but the, the number of, of cable stations and all of that, which can basically sort of purport their view of life. The days of Walter Cronkite, they're over. That's right. We do have a problem which Trump labeled uh, f uh, fake news. Um, you begin to get echo chambers. You begin to listen only to the people on your social media feed who all agree with you, which, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, a liberal, conservative, whatever your political stripe. And that also includes people in the Ku Klux Klan and the oath takers and others that want to overthrow the government. Um, so we have to deal with the media, and that is one of the tricky problems of our democracy. Uh, we're going to need to place some breaks on some aspects of social media, which is not going to be easy. We need to go back to something like the fairness doctrine, which used to allow that if a political candidate made a, uh, a strong statement about something uh, on uh, television, for instance, and, and uh lied about their opponent, that their opponent would get the same time to answer them. That was the basic principle. And it goes back to the Lincoln and Douglas debate uh, just before the Civil War. In that debate, everybody could compare what Lincoln said and what Douglas said and cast an informed vote. They saw it in person. 
Well, we don't see it in person anymore, but we do need to have the opportunity to have legitimate news that we know is trustworthy and to have something like the fairness doctrine, which means that we don't hear just one side of the story, that we hear both sides and can make a judgment. So you spend a good portion of the book talking about many of the things we talked about and in a lot more detail. So people can't rely on this conversation. They need to read the book. But in fairness, you also get into the world of solutions. You don't just leave us out there with the concerns and the problems. You point us in the direction of what needs to be done to to save democracy, to have it rebirthed, uh, and to keep it around. And one of the points you talk about is education, basically noting that high school, college, that's great, but uh, it's not enough today. And, and your answer is not, you're not just saying, so go to grad school. That, that's not your point. No, um, among other aspects of education, we need education for democracy. Uh, which means we need to learn how to be citizens in our educational institutions. Uh, In addition, in education, we need to beef up the community colleges. We need to beef up the trade schools. We need to make education affordable. We shouldn't be having student loans choking us out of uh, the rest of our life, the money that we make uh, from what we gained in education. Education used to be a great way to move forward in life. It is not always so good anymore. And so we have to fix that. But of the problems I'm most concerned about, it's the failure of our educational institutions to teach us how to run a democracy. You write about money and politics. You have to write about money and politics. And here's the thing I find really interesting. You know, there's people who go after, say, J.B. Pritzker because he self-funds his campaign. The guy can write a check for $90 million and put it in his account. And then there's others who say, good, because I don't want to pay any money. So let him pay for his own campaign. Question about whether that's fair. But then there's the other side of this. There's the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts, the people who get lots of little donation from tons of people. Both of them have a lot of money. That is the J.B. Pritzker self-funders and the Marjorie Taylor Green individual small dollar people. Are either of them the right road to politics, the doors of which got opened by the Citizens United case anyway? We need to move to public funding. There is no other way around it. Um, And by that, I mean that there ought to be a formula that if you give less than $250, let's say you give $100 to the candidates you like most for Congress that the uh, the government would then, on a matching formula, give at least five times more, six times, ten times more than what you gave. So your $100 becomes maybe $1,000. And it's not that the candidate with the most money always wins. Um, it's uh, that the, every candidate who's going to be viable has to have enough money to be able to get their message to the voters. The real issue is, do we have enough money that any candidate who's a viable candidate to begin with, that has some support, can get their message out and voters can choose between them? And that's why public funding is, in my view, the only answer that will work. Uh, It will, uh, there may still be, depending on the system, J.B. Pritchers who can write a big check for a lot of money. But if I'm running against him, I don't care what he's spending as long as I can spend enough to be competitive. Again, we'll go back to the Lori Lightfoot campaign. In the primary, she only spent a million dollars. She spent five million by the time the general was done. But that's raisable, um, particularly if public funding is available. You write about gerrymandering, and, and you say that needs to be fixed. 
Can we agree that that's just probably not going to happen? Look what's happening even in this season with the uh, the two maps that the, the, the public is likely going to vote about. Change in Illinois tries to enter the picture by talking to the people and that gets shot down. The bottom line is people gripe about Republican states where Republicans gerrymander. But the truth is, Democratic states like Illinois, they do the same thing. Why would anybody give up power, Dick? Why would any why would in Illinois the Democrats go, you know what, we really need to spread the wealth a little bit. Let's just give Republicans a stronger voice. Why would anybody do that? Well, for a very simple reason. Um, if you go back to again the Harold Washington era, uh Harold had an ethics commission that proposed an ethics ordinance. Couldn't get it passed. Uh up comes the 1987 election, and David Orr puts that same bill, that same ordinance, onto the docket. Aldermen have to vote, are they favorable or unfavorable to ethics? They vote for ethics. For the first time in Chicago history in 1987, we adopted an ethics ordinance. To then gerrymandering, you have to have the same situation. You have to have it at election time, and no politician wants to vote for gerrymandering if it's got, if their name's going to be on the ballot next to it. The Electoral College, of course, lots of, you know, gripes with that because you have, uh, well, as you know, you've got, you know, basically pr- presidents who be- get elected president through the, through the Electoral College, even though they lost the popular vote. Some would argue that technology is such today that we ought to be able to elect people on the popular vote. There were reasons behind the Electoral College when the founders created it, but that's also in the Constitution. Can we agree that's just not going anywhere? It's not by constitutional amendment, but it is going to go by national popular vote, which is a compact between the states. And the nice thing about something like the Electoral College is it's a structural problem that can be fixed. It's much easier than fixing the politics of resentment or rebirthing democracy in the United States. You also write that democracies do die and rebirth can take decades. How close is this country to watching its democracy die? We're only two elections away. If we elected two people uh, simultaneously, uh, you know, one election apart, that was eight years, um, we would be in danger of losing our democracy. We're that close Uh, because uh, particularly because of the Trump administration in that era, we knocked away a lot of the guardrails of democracy procedures that have been in place. And I, I could I go in the book to some detail. For instance, in the House of Representatives, a majority of the majority party controls a house. That is 25% of the Congress, not 100% control what happens. In the Senate, we're all familiar with the filibuster and what it does. It would not be very hard for a uh, would-be dictator to take over get support in both houses of Congress and ruin our democracy in two elections. Is it also true? People often look at like a single election and they see sort of the future coming from that. But you write that a single election is not an endpoint. It's a first step. It's a first step. So for people who like Biden, that was great, but it isn't over. We haven't made all the changes we need to do uh, if we're to save democracy. I write in the book that it will take decades um, at least one decade to be able to begin to reestablish our democracy, partly because we don't have much practice at either participatory democracy at the local level where we deal with policies directly or with deliberative democracy where our representatives can actually understand what we need and want. Uh, Congressman represents 750,000 people. 
I can tell you that congressman doesn't know those 750,000 people. To be able to do that, you have to institute new procedures and not just public opinion polls, because public opinion polls only register prejudice in the literal sense, prejudgment. If I ask you what's your view on abortion, you'll give me an answer. But if we talk about what should be done and legislatively, we have to talk about actual laws and what the effects are and what the proposal is. Out of time, Dick, but a real quick question. What's a bigger threat? Individual corruption, people who are bad people within the system, or institutional corruption? A Mitch McConnell who says the Senate, if we could get if Republicans get control, we will not even hear any Biden appointments to the Supreme Court, maybe even any court in the last two years of his term. Well, it's institutional corruption uh, in the sense of, of corrupting the institutions like the, the primary the money primary I talked about. But it's also the system of corruption. In Illinois, we've been practicing corruption since, ni- uh, since 1871, uh, when the first machine got started. Uh, we have a 150-year practice, and that practice reinforces each other. The reason we have so many corrupt politicians go to jail is that we've been doing that corruption. And the argument everybody does it is not true, but that's the way the system works. So we have to change our patterns, our practices, our norms. It's not just a simple legal change. Well, this is the kind of discussion you get when you read Democracy's Rebirth, The View from Chicago. Such a We could talk for hours, Dick, but I want people to read the book and get even more out of it than you and I have talked about. But I think we perhaps whetted their appetites on the kind of things that you talk about. Again, congratulations on an important book, uh, maybe only second to your autobiography that you wrote. We, don't, we, do, we certainly want to not, not uh, put, that, <laughs> put that one aside. But Professor Dick Simpson, congratulations on Democracy's Rebirth. Thanks for spending some time for me. I hope everybody checks it out. You can get it on Amazon or wherever better books are sold. Thank you, Dick. Thank you, Paul. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.